No, it is, it is fun to be back um, in this room. It looks a little different than when I was a student. Um, but yeah, it's great, it's great to be here. As I was kind of reflecting, preparing for today's message, um, it reminded me that I have a handful of very irrational fears in life. Um, and, and two that I thought kind of made the most sense for this morning. One, um, you know when you're driving like in a parking lot or a parking garage and then there's those spikes that you need to drive over? So I've never had a bad experience with those. But because of those signs, right, they have just scared me to death. And I'm convinced every time I go over, I'm like, this is the time that I'm stuck here for hours with nowhere to go. I see at least one person nodding, so I feel a little bit better that I'm not the only one. Um, and one of the other ones is I, I'm like deathly afraid of the garbage disposal. Um, and it's, it's probably because one of my parents warned me about that like many, many times. I think one time I like maybe got my hand close and this parent convinced, you know, was warning me like, your fingers could get chopped off, like your hand, all, all this stuff. And so now, like, I never want to go near it. If there's something stuck in there, like, unplug it. Maybe we should just get a new one and, like, pay someone to replace it. Um, but the good news is, I mean, I still have all ten fingers thanks to my mom. <laughs> and the reality is, like, when we have some sort of warning sign, either, whether it's verbal or big scary red letters, like, hopefully, we listen to it. Hopefully, we, we take heed and we either change our course of action or maybe we don't change our course of action, right? Don't back up. Keep going forward. Um, because there's a very real danger ahead of us or nearby. Um, and that's the really fun, exciting thing about today's passage is Jesus has a pretty stern warning to his disciples, um, the nice thing is we kind of get a miracle at the beginning and a miracle at the end um, to make it feel better. But I think also to really emphasize what we need to be concerned about, what Jesus wants us to watch out for, um, and to help remind us and show us that with him, we can do the right thing. With him, we can pursue God in a way that will glorify the Father, in a way that we can demonstrate that we love Jesus. So in the beginning of this passage, uh, Mark starts in, in chapter 8, in verse 1. He starts by telling a story where Jesus uh, feeds the 4,000, right? Your Bible might say that at the beginning. And he writes, During those days, another large crowd gathered, since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Remember, I don't know if it was last week or the week before when Dale mentioned, um, you know, we think a sermon here is long, but go on a mission trip. And it's like a few hours. Three days they've been listening to Jesus <laughs> and have nothing to eat. Jesus says, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. 
His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Okay, I'm going to pause there for a second. Um, If you've been reading Mark up to this point, or you were here um, when we went through the feeding of the 5,000, you might be like me wondering, why are the disciples asking where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Right? Like Jesus, I mean, he literally did this already. They were there. And by the way, we see kind of how it's recorded. In the feeding of the 5,000, it's clear that that was just the men and there were other women and children. So there's like more than 10,000 people likely. And here it's, it's only four. So it seems like this should be kind of an like an easy thing for Jesus to do. Be like, well, Jesus, like, you want to feed them? Like, go ahead. Or, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll pass it out again. But instead, like many of us, it's easy to forget or easy to wonder, is God going to come through in the same way? So they ask him, how are we going to get enough bread to feed them? Jesus answers, he says, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven baskets, basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went off to the region of Dalmanutha. So we kind of see Jesus, he, he comes through again, right? He does this miracle. And I think it's important, really, anytime we're reading in a gospel, to ask the question, like, well, why did, you know, we happen to be Mark, so why did Mark include this story? I think it's especially pertinent because Mark's already told a story about Jesus feeding a bunch of people miraculously. So why is he telling us something very similar again? And I think the biggest thing to me that stands out is the fact that we're going to get to um, a section where it's clear the disciples don't get it. So he's done this miracle twice, and the disciples still don't quite get it. They're still having trouble. But first, the Pharisees show up, because they just like to stir up trouble whenever they can. Well, maybe not whenever they can. Whenever Jesus is around, they seem to be there trying to stir up some trouble. So it says, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven, right? And in the NIV, like, this can sound, like, kind of nice or gentle or, like, a genuine curiosity. Um, it was not. All right? When it talks about them testing him and then asking him for a sign, without going into too many details, but in Greek, when Mark's writing this, there's different words he can use for test or ask. There's different words for miracle or sign. And he kind of switches things up to make it clear like, the Pharisees are approaching Jesus not because they want to believe, but because they're trying to prove him wrong. 
They don't believe that he's the son of God. They want him to prove that his authority comes from God. But they've been around for healings. They've been around for exorcisms. They've been around for miracles. They've seen all of these things. But we kind of know already that the Pharisees typically don't get it, or they don't want to get it. And so Jesus, in this instance, instead of kind of arguing with them or putting them in their place, which he does on occasion, instead, Mark writes, he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to you. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Right? He gave out this big sigh. He was probably annoyed because he knew. He understood their intentions. He probably didn't even need to be the son of God to figure out why they were asking him. He knew they weren't going to believe. He knew, I've given all these other miracles but you're choosing to reject me. And so in this instance, he gets back, he doesn't give a sign, and he crosses to the other side on the boat again. Then we get to what in some ways I think is kind of the comical part when we read about how the disciples respond. And I say it can seem comical because it's one of those things where it's funny And then when you realize this is me, it's not quite as funny. What he says in verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Right? There were, what, how many baskets full? Seven. And they brought one piece onto the boat. That, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure what happened there. So Jesus says, he says, be careful, Jesus warned to them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed it with one another and said, is it because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So they remembered the miracles, but Jesus is making a point that you need more than to just see. You need more than to just observe. You need more than to just hear. You need to understand. You need to understand the truth about who Jesus is, You need to understand what that means about who God is, who's created you to be, and how he has called you to live. Now, if we remember too, last week, um, 
the message was from the end of chapter 7, where Jesus heals a deaf man. And right after the passage that I've read, Jesus heals a blind man. And kind of right in the middle of these two miracles, healing a deaf man, healing a blind man, restoring someone so they can hear, restoring someone so he can see, Jesus is asking the disciples, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And I think this is one of the ways that Mark is kind of helping us narrow in on how significant this warning is when he warns about the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, when Scripture uses the term or uses the word yeast, when it talks about that, it's not always bad, but it usually has like a negative connotation. And if we've been following along and are kind of aware of how the Pharisees have been, um, they're typically not on the side of Jesus. And if we know much, we might not know much about Herod. Um, he's not mentioned a ton yet, but it's, he's the ruler in the area. He's not the same Herod from when Jesus was born, but it's his son. And he's not exactly the greatest guy either. So all of this combined, we know that what Jesus is talking about is that there is something about these lifestyles or these people or their hearts that are different from what God wants. And he's making it a point for the disciples that there are people who should know, people who have seen, people who have heard, and they don't. And if you choose to head down that path, if you choose to care about the things that the Pharisees care about, if you choose to care about the things that Herod cares about, it will only continue to grow inside you to the point where your heart is hardened and it makes it nearly impossible to see and understand the truth about who Jesus is, the truth about his teachings, and then it hinders our ability to love other people the way that God has called us to love them. And it starts small, but unchecked, it can ruin you. Because when our hearts are hardened, we no longer see what we're supposed to see. We see what we want to see. We see what we choose to see, or we see what we set out to find, no matter what's around us. And in this, we can become incredibly self-centered. And I think that's not only been a problem since the beginning of humanity, but I think it's a especially difficult living in Silicon Valley like we do, to not be tempted to become self-centered. Because we live in a culture that celebrates the individual, that celebrates 
the self. And Jesus is warning us, we have to be careful. We have to be on guard. We have to be paying attention. And I think the two biggest things that the Pharisees and Herod have in common is the fact that they both oppose Jesus and they both oppose the way of Jesus in two kind of different ways. One group was more religiously oriented. Herod was maybe more politically oriented. You could say Herod is living a very worldly life and the Pharisees were living a more devout religious life, but for the wrong reasons. Their priorities and values did not match Jesus's. And I don't think our priorities and values naturally line up with God's. I think so much of the message of Scripture is how much we need Jesus because we can't do it on our own. Right? The old, in the Old Testament, prophesies about how God would one day send someone so he could give his people a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. We need Jesus, or else we will have a hardened heart. Now, when it comes to the Pharisees, um, we've got a few other passages I want us to look at. Just because they, they show up a lot more often. Um, so, the first one we have is going to be in Matthew uh, 23, verse 25. All right, so here's what Jesus says to them. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Right? So we see this idea where he, he's accusing the Pharisees of doing and saying one thing in public, but maybe thinking and believing a different thing in private. Or doing things outwardly that might look really good, but on the inside, right, they're full of something else. Luke 12, verse 1. He says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Right? So Luke gives us a little helpful hint here. Hypocrisy. Matthew 6, 5. When you, pay, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. This comes from Matthew when uh, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And we've got one more passage from, from Matthew as well, kind of in the same section. Um, in verse 16, here's what Jesus says. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. And I love the way Jesus ends this, um, just like the last verse. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Right? So here, Jesus is addressing people who were praying and fasting. Those sound like good things to me. Right? And if you asked anybody 
during that time, they would have said, absolutely, like it's important to pray, it's important to fast. These are things that we do to honor God. But what's clear from those verses is that people are often doing them not to honor God, but to look good in the eyes of others. Which is why Jesus says, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Meaning, if they go out to pray in public just for the attention, that's exactly what they're going to get. And that's all that they're going to get. Because God knows, he's like, you don't genuinely care about what you're saying. You don't genuinely care about honoring me. So I'm not going to be answering those prayers. Because all you want is for people to think that you're spiritual. And that's what you're going to get for now. And when we think of the idea of hypocrisy and self-righteousness, right, these verses really indicate that Jesus cares about what's inside. Right, when he talks about like the inside the outside of something being clean and the inside being dirty. Right? People see the outside, but Jesus can see into our hearts and our minds and knows our character, knows who we are, knows our intentions. And he wants those to match. He wants those to line up. And he wants us to genuinely follow him. And then have the outside reflect or mirror or match what's on the inside. Because self-righteousness will blind us. Because it makes our good deeds about us instead of about God. And I think that will be a temptation for everybody in some capacity for as long as we live. Because it feels good when people think you're good at something. It feels good to know that you're good at something. And sometimes it feels really good to believe that you're better than somebody else. If it didn't, I don't think it would be tempting. Let's be honest, sometimes it feels great. And that's why Jesus says we have to be aware of these types of things. Because what starts small will only continue to grow. And it leads to things like bitterness and resentment. And it's really hard to come to church or sing a worship song or read God's word when you're full of bitterness and resentment and self-righteousness and to actually be changed. It's really hard. Because when we're self-righteous, we don't even believe that we need God to help us. We don't believe that we're part of the problem. We don't believe that we need to change. And that might be a far cry from just believing or thinking like, oh man, like my friend really should go to church more and be a better Christian. But that's where it can start. And where it leads can be miserable and can lead to destruction. I think, too, it's also tempting along these lines, whether someone's particularly religious or not. Um, 
in today's day and age. Because we kind of live in a time where virtue signaling has become a big thing. Right? This idea that we can say something or post something and that that's enough. Or that if we say the right thing, we can feel good about what we believe. And this could be politically, no matter where you land on the political spectrum. This could be religiously, whether you see yourself as more conservative or more liberal. But we live in a day and age where we're hyper aware of these differences. And it's really easy to view those things and feel really good about being in the right camp. And sometimes we are in the right camp and sometimes we're not. But in some ways in this issue, Jesus would say it doesn't matter. Because you can be in the right camp and act in a way that's going to lead you away from God. Now when it comes to kind of the parallels with Herod today, and I think about Silicon Valley culture and kind of living a more worldly life, and I just think we are surrounded by worldly success. And that's not entirely a bad thing, right? New technology, medicine, standard of living. Like, there are a lot of things that are really, really great about the advancements that have been made. But we're surrounded by it to a point where it's easy to start to believe that this is what's important. And I think, too, it's really hard when you live here to not get sucked in. Because at the end of the day, like, things are expensive. Right? If you want to rent or buy a home, that costs a lot of money. Right now, like, stuff at the grocery store is getting expensive. And we notice that. And so you have to make more money than you ever would have imagined just to survive around here. And most jobs are not 40-hour-a-week jobs. And so it's very easy to get into this cycle of, you know, let's just say you, you have kids. Wake up in the morning, help them get ready for school, drop them off, head to work, you're at work till late, come home, eat a late dinner, get the kids to bed, watch a TV show or something, and then fall asleep, right? That's like a lot of Monday through Fridays for quite a few of us. And that's not a bad thing. But it's easy to spend so much time surrounded by success and so much time working that we can become driven by those things. And if that becomes the priority over Jesus, we're going to be in trouble. It might start small, but it will become big. Another thing, too, that stands out to me is we live in an area where there's a lot of, like, service-based um, jobs. And that's a really good thing in, in so many ways. But it can turn us into consumers. And that can change the way that we view church. And it can be really easy to come to church and think, I want it to be the way that I want it to be. I mean, it would be nice if that was true. 
But that's really not what church was ever supposed to be about. But it's easy for us to make it about ourselves, to want it to be a certain way. And so instead of being able to show up ready to worship with other people, instead of being ready to show up and read from God's Word and hopefully experience some sort of transformation, um, it can be really easy to just find the things that we're not as happy about. You know, and I'll be the first to say that I can struggle with this. I'll tell you, when I was in seminary, probably the greatest class I ever took that I'm most thankful for was my preaching class. It changed my life. It changed my view of Scripture. It changed my view of the power of Jesus working through the Word of God. I learned a lot. I became a much better communicator, a much better teacher. But here's the thing. In order to do that, we would give sermons and record them and then meet and talk about what we could do better. Right? Super, super helpful. But you know what's a lot easier than judging your own sermon? I see some smiles. You know where I'm going. Like judging someone else's sermon. Right? And it's tough because on the one hand, I was like, man, I was trained to like find my mistakes so I could get better. So now it's really easy when anyone else is speaking to notice what I would consider a mistake. And like the disciples who, you know, took a while to figure this out, um, I had a moment a few years ago when, I, I, it's hard to remember exactly how I was prompted to do this. Um, I know that it was, it was God kind of impressing it on my heart, but I don't remember if it came quite out of the blue. But I sensed he was asking me to, to really encourage um, those who were preaching in the main services when I was on staff at Calvary. So I would do my very best on Sundays before I left to send Dale or Andrew or Steve a text. Just thank you for your message, something that I liked about it to try and make it personal. Um, and I remember, for whatever reason, thinking like, and they, like, they must really need encouragement. Um, and it was probably months later, not, not days, not weeks, but months later, that God was like, no, Patrick, like, you needed this. Because now I finally started realizing, oh, like, not just sometimes, but a lot of times it's easy to walk away and be like, I wish the sermon had been different. And instead, God changed my heart to help me see, like, there's always lots of good things in these messages. But the difference was whether or not I was ready to hear them, right? I've got ears, but did I hear? Sometimes. Right? And that was, that was a big moment. For me, and I hadn't thought about it in a long time, um, but that's the beauty of reading through Scripture: is God will remind us about the things that we've learned or the things that we need to learn. Now, uh, um, this this next passage is not going to be on the on the screen, um, but I'll just read it. So listen along. 
Because after Jesus gives these warnings, um, and after he talks to them in the boat, he, uh, he does a miracle. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. Then he spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. Jesus asked, do you see anything? Yeah, remember last time? He spit too, right? With the fingers and the ears. He spits on the guy's eyes. He looked up, said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Right, and so I think one of the reasons Mark kind of transitions right into this miracle is to help show the disciples and really to help remind us That not only do we need Jesus, but Jesus can do this. When we lean into him, when we immerse our lives in his word, miracles will happen and we will be able to see. The reality is we spend so much time in the world. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I just mean that's the reality of life. We live in an, an area that's primarily unchurched. We spend most of our time working or in school. And even a lot of the media content that's created, right? It's not coming from a Christian perspective. So we're just, we're surrounded and we're bombarded regularly with messages from the world. So we need that time with Jesus. We need Sundays. We need Sundays together. And we need time during other days of the week too to spend with him. Because then instead of making God or church about us, we'll make it about Him. We'll make it about glorifying God and serving the church together. And in the spirit of this passage, I would ask, like, where is your heart being hardened? Trust and pray that Jesus will open your ears and open your eyes. Now let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this church. I pray that you would reveal in all of us just one way that we need to look out. Gently if possible, but firmly if that's what we need. 
But I also pray that you would be with us. And that you would continue to work your miracles and that you would continue to change us from the inside out. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for what you'll continue to do. In your son's name we pray. God, we just glorify your name in this place. We praise you. Your name is above all other names. God, you deserve glory above all other things. God, every single thing that we love and experience, even the good things, God, you deserve the praise and the glory and the honor over them. You deserve it all, God. Let our lives be a living sacrifice. Let our worship be a spiritual sacrifice of our whole selves to you. God, we just pray that your voice increase that your presence increase in our daily lives. God, draw us closer and nearer to you. God, reveal to us the fullness of your glory. God, so we begin to be, just begin to understand how great you are. We love you and we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again, guys, for joining us this Sunday. Uh, we look forward just every week to getting together and worshiping together and hearing from God's word together. So we hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week.